Lord, our hearts are stirred up, visioning that stream of your children throughout the ages of history, streaming through those gates flung wide open into eternity, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Alleluia, Alleluia. And oh, how we wish to be a part of that rapturous moment. We're still here. The gates are not ajar. There's work on this planet yet to do in Mongolia and America and Australia and Brazil. There is work to do in every land. What can we learn from the past that can ignite this movement into its last chapter? Let today's teaching please be clear for the glory and honor of Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. While the world is stewing right now, there is an important lesson from the past it would be well for us to learn. My friend Joni Bell sent to me this journal, Foreign Affairs Journal. Scribbled a note and said, Dwight, I think you'll be intrigued with this essay. I'll look the essay up. Oh my, very much so. Title of this piece, Complexity and Collapse, Empires on the Edge of Chaos. It's a piece written by Neal Ferguson. Who's Ferguson? Well, Neal Ferguson is Lawrence Tisch Professor of History at Harvard University, a fellow at Jesus College, Oxford, and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He obviously has enough credentials for you and me to sit up and note what he's about to write. He says, look, I understand how historians have interpreted history. Empires are all cyclical. They have this little start here, and then they, 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 they wax, and then they slowly wane. But he challenges the ruling premise in history today. For centuries, historians, political theorists, anthropologists, and the public at large have tended to think about empires in cyclical and gradual terms. But here comes the challenge. Listen to this put it on the screen for you. Yet, it is possible that this whole conceptual framework, cyclical, is in fact flawed. Keep reading. What if history is not cyclical and slow-moving but arrhythmic, at times almost stationary but also capable of accelerating suddenly like a sports car? What if collapse does not arrive over a number of centuries but comes suddenly like a thief in the night? Oh, you got my attention now. I recognize that metaphor, don't you? From this brilliant historian. What if history ends like a thief in the night for an empire like the United States? He goes on, put it on the screen for you. Great powers and empires are, I would suggest, complex systems made up of a very large number of interacting components that are asymmetrically organized, which means their construction more resembles a termite hill than an Egyptian pyramid. Hit the pause button right there. You've seen the pyramids, haven't you? Very nice. Nice up, nice down. Have you ever seen a termite hill as we have in Africa? Yeah. Or in other places in the world, in the southern hemisphere? That's a very rugged mountain. Nothing equal. Nothing symmetrical about it. Could it be empires of the same way, he wonders? 
Pick it up where we left off. Could it be that empires operate somewhere between order and disorder on the edge of chaos? A very small trigger. Now, listen up to this. A very small trigger can set off a phase transition from benign equilibrium to a crisis. A single grain of sand causes a whole pile to collapse. Or a butterfly flaps its wings in the Amazon. Those of you from Brazil, a little butterfly flaps its wings in the Amazon. And what happens? Scientists tell us it can happen. Bring about a hurricane in southeastern England. The change. Just a tiny little trigger. And that's what caught my eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, that line, did you catch that? A very small trigger. Now, you people from overseas will understand that we're rather preoccupied in this nation with a hole in the floor of the Gulf of Mexico one mile under the surface of the water. It's called the BP oil spill. It's the preoccupation of America right now. And I must tell you, the thought did occur to me that just one small trigger... An insignificant little trigger can bring an empire down. There are more than a few minds in this nation wondering, what's the end to this? Nobody knows. Wow. And so uh, Ferguson goes on, what matters most is that in such systems, a relatively minor shock can cause a disproportionate and sometimes fatal disruption. But this fact is rarely recognized because of the collective addiction to cyclical theories. No, it's got to go through a cycle. Wrong, he says. And he, he revisits Rome, the British Empire, and he says, look it, it can be shown that in fact, how does he put it here? The shift from consummation to destruction and then to desolation is not cyclical. It is sudden. And so here we are, community of faith, making its way to Atlanta in just a few hours, where the delegates of this world church will convene, the leaders of this world church will meet, and the business of the church will be conducted, and new leaders will be elected. And I wonder if we shall go into Atlanta with this business-as-usual spirit. Could it be? That just a few grains of sand shifting on the horizon of human events could suddenly change this world forever. Could it be the church needs desperately to learn the lessons of the past? Or as our theme line for this little mini-series of four parts, quoting the the, uh, Spanish-American philosopher George Santayana, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Could it be that if we don't learn the lesson, we'll just go on and on and on. And so we come to the fourth king. The Santayana factor, Tales of the Kings. This will be the fourth king, the last king. Turns out this is the good king. The last good king, who, by the way, is the best king of all the kings. Wouldn't you know it? And his name, you know what his name means? The Lord saves. I want to tell you something about this name. The name is very similar to another person who has a name that almost means the same. His name, this king's name, king number four, means the Lord saves. The other person I'm thinking of, his name meant the Lord is my salvation. Similar in meaning. The one who had the name the Lord is my salvation was called by his family Yoshua. The Greek later transliterated it to Iesus. And we know him as Jesus. The Lord is my salvation. This king, Yoshaya. Yoshaya and Yoshua, the names are almost identical. Josiah 
and Jesus. It's a clue, by the way, in the name that we're not going to face a spiritual meltdown like we have with the previous kings. Something about this life is unusual. We're going to that life because it is unusual and it holds the seeds to the future of our church. The greatest reformation in the history of Israel took place under the leadership of this Josiah. And I want to find out what kind of a leader do you have to be for our reformation and revival to sweep through your community of faith. Because God knows we need a reformation and revival today in Adventism globally. So, I'm going to tell you something. You're going to do the arithmetic in the opening line of this King's story. And in the moment you do the arithmetic, you're going to discover there's a tragic ending. You'll crunch the numbers and you'll realize his life ends tragically. Open your Bible with me, please, to Second Chronicles. We'll go to the, to the story of this final piece in our mini-series leading up to Atlanta. Second Chronicles chapter 34. You didn't bring a Bible, grab the pew Bible in front of you. You want to follow English because you're here in church today? Grab the pew Bible in front of you. Let me give you the page number. Page number would be 319. 319. Second Chronicles chapter 34. By the way, the Pew Bible and the Bible I'm holding in my hand are the same translation. The New King James Version. And I don't mind telling you, it is such an honor for me to hold this Bible in my hands because this was the first one that came off the press. And I was so honored to get it. This is the New King James Version of the Andrew Study Bible. If you get the Adventist Review, the, the, or, the, the major organ or journal of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, this last week, this Bible was the cover story. The Andrew Study Bible. Those of you heading to Atlanta, you want to pick up one of these. You will want to have this Bible in your collection. The notes at the bottom of the pages, all these notes are written by scholars. Some of the scholars sitting right here on this campus. You'll want this Bible. It's a wonderful Bible. So I'm going to be in the... Don't, don't, don't mind me. I'm going to be in the Andrew Study Bible. But let's find, uh, let's find 2 Chronicles chapter 34. You'll, do the, you, you'll crunch the numbers and you'll see it's a tragic ending. 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 1. Josiah, put it on the screen for you. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. So do the arithmetic. Eight plus one is 39 is too young to die. It is too young to die at any time in earth's history. He's dead at 39. Something tragic goes wrong. But look at this king. He starts out, did you, did you notice that? He starts out at the age of eight. Now, last week we were studying Uzziah, and Uzziah started out at the age of 16. And after we noted that fact, I shared with you the statement, let the record show that 16-year-olds can lead. But today I'm not going to say let the record show that eight-year-olds can lead. Because eight-year-olds can't lead. They can't lead. But I'll tell you what eight-year-olds do well at. Look at verse 2. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left hand. Do you know that Josiah is the only king that gets that descriptor attached to his reign? He did not turn to the right. He did not turn to the left. The only king in all of the kings, and by the way, in this Andrew Study Bible, there's a listing of the kings, so you get a feel of the scope of history. We think it's all happening in a few years. This is, this is history stretched. The only king to get this descriptor. Do you know where the descriptor came from? It came from Moses. Moses in the book of Deuteronomy was going to tell the world, if you're going to have a king one day, this is how the king must be. You want a spiritual leader one day? This is the kind of spiritual leader you must choose. 
I'm very curious as to what Moses would, would tell us. And so grab your study guide right now, will you? Grab your study guide. And let's jot down this description of a strong spiritual leader. Hold your hand up if you didn't get a study guide. Our friendly ushers are coming your way up into the balcony. Glad to have you. Those of you watching on television, we're delighted to have you. You can get the same study guide. I'll put it on the screen for you right now. You'll see a website. That website, you see at the bottom of the screen, www.pmchurch. That's our website, pmchurch.tv. And by the way, you can get that website in Brazil. You can get it in Australia. You can get it in New Zealand. And you can get it in Mongolia. So you can join us. You can, you can download these podcasts. If you haven't heard the rest, just go ahead. The study guides are all there. That's the website, pmchurch.tv. You're looking for the series, The Santayana Factor, Tales of the Kings. This is the final part, part four. You're watching on television. You, come to, you, you, see, you get to part four and it says study guide. Click on there. You'll have the same study guide we have. All right? Everybody have a study guide here? Good. Let's go. But before we actually jot this list down, we, got, we, we need to go back to Deuteronomy. One of the nice things about this Andrew Study Bible, by the way, another nice thing is that there are two ribbons in it. So I can go right back to Deuteronomy 17. I want you to look it up in your Bible, please. Don't read it off the screen. Deuteronomy 17. Here is a physical, a, a spiritual, a mental and emotional description of a, spirit, a strong spiritual leader. Moses gives it. And I wish you'd uh, just read this, please. Uh, let's read this together. So this is Deuteronomy 17, uh, verse 18. Those of you in the Pew Bible, that would be page 135. Okay, just, just a few lines here, but notice these. It begins in verse 18. Here's a description of a strong spiritual leader. And so it shall be when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book. So he's going to take the law. That's the book of Deuteronomy right here. He's going to re, rewrite it, handwrite it. You know what? You can read somebody else's printing, but if you write it out yourself, it goes into your mind and it stays in your heart much longer. So the king is required to write out the law. He'll write it out for himself, a copy of this law, in a book. He'll get it from one of the priests and the Levites. In verse 19, And it shall be with the king that he shall read this handwritten document that he's put together all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be, a, be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment. Here's that line now. He may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Isn't that something? Jot them down. Let's jot them down. There are five... Five descriptors, five qualifications for a strong spiritual leader. Let's put them on the screen. Number one, he must, she must know the law of God. Number one, are you a leader? You must know the law of God. If you're a spiritual leader, you have to know. Ah, but that actually isn't as legalistic as it sounds. Come on, when the President of the United States on Inauguration Day puts his hand on a Bible and he swears to uphold a document, what is that document that he swears that he will uphold in his office? What's the document? It's a document called the Constitution. What is it? Every leader knows that he must uphold the highest values of his people. For a spiritual leader, the highest values are the law, the Ten Commandments. It's the, re- it's the revelation of God. So a strong spiritual leader, number one, he knows the law of God. Number two, he reads, she reads the Word of God. You know the law of God, you read the Word of God. The Torah, or the law of God, is in fact the Word of God. By the way, I need to remind you that once upon a time, 
the greatest leader in human history, under great duress one day, quoted words from Deuteronomy just a few pages away. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And the words went like this. It Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every leader must be immersed in Holy Scripture. He knows the law of God. He reads the Word of God. Would you write it down, please? He learns, she learns the fear of God. Fear of God. I tell you what, where there's no healthy awe or reverence or fear of God, carelessness at best or rank rebellion at worst is festering just beneath the surface. You study the history of Israel and Judah. Study their kings. The kings who lost their fear collapsed. Because when you lose your fear of God, you lose your fear of sin. Fear of sin only is tied to fear of God. And when you lose your fear of sin, the culture of the world around you becomes your own. And you don't even bat an eye. Ah, spiritual leaders. Here they are. Number number three. What are we ready for? Number four. Okay, number three is learn the fear of God. Number four, practices the humility of God. Thank you for that coaching. Appreciate that. Number four, practices the humility of God. As it turns out, humility is an identifiable marker in both the secular and the spiritual world. You know what? I've shared this with you many times before, but I'll remind you again. James Collins, in his book, Good to Great, identifies the strongest leaders in corporate America, the business leaders of America, to a man and woman. They are identified by personal humility. Humility. He shall not consider himself above his his brothers, we read just a moment ago. Humility is a mark of a spiritual, a strong spiritual leader. And finally, number five, he exemplifies, she exemplifies the obedience of God. Hey, listen, if you're on a path that turns neither to the right or to the left, all right, so you're on a path, doesn't turn to the right and doesn't turn to the left, what direction is that path going? Straight ahead. Since it's his Father's Day, I want to tell you about my little boy, Kirk, who's now 30 years old and married. But when Kirk was a little boy and we call him in to suffer, he'd say, okay, Kirk, it's time to eat. And Kirk said, okay, I'm coming. So he'd be playing with his toys in his bedroom. And he'd get up and start moving towards the table. But then he'd see a toy out of the corner of his right eye. He'd see a toy. Whoa, he'd go right over there. Pick up that toy just for a few months. Hey, Kirk, you know it's time to eat. Oh, I'm coming, Dad. And then he'd be walking a little further. And then he'd say, oh, a toy off to the left. He'd grab that toy and look at that toy. If he had a GPS of his uh, journey to the supper table, it was zigzag, zigzag the whole way. Not so a leader. A spiritual leader. Nothing to the right, nothing to the left. Straight as an arrow, right on beam with the Almighty God of the universe. That's the kind of leader we need. Straight as an arrow on beam with the Almighty. I mean, how else is she supposed to lead? How else can he lead the people of God? There they are, ladies and gentlemen, five vital leadership lessons. And guess what? Young Josiah would end up learning all five of them, which is why he's the only king in the history of Judah and Israel. And that includes David. That includes Solomon. Nobody gets this descriptor that Josiah does. He didn't turn to the right. He didn't turn to the left. He kept straight, straight on the way of God. Wow. But I tell you what. I tell you what. The, 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 the more significant reason... 
we are turning to the story of Josiah right now is not because he was a good spiritual leader. There were other good spiritual leaders. I mean, come on, his, his uh, great-grandpa, his great-grandpa, King Hezekiah, was a good spiritual leader. King Joshua, which we've already noted, is a good spiritual leader. So we're not interested right now in just good spiritual leadership. You know what we're interested in? We want to know what kind of a leader does it take to bring up out of the community of faith through the power of God a mighty reformation, the greatest reformation in the history of Israel took place under Josiah's leadership. So what kind of a king does it take? What kind of a leader would it take? Let's find out. In fact, would you jot it down? The story of Josiah makes it clear that a reformation needs a reformed and reforming leader. We want to find out what kind of a leader is that. A reformed and reforming leader. God knows our community is in need of a spiritual reformation. We have essentially done business as usual for decades, but in some critical point in human history, this community will be possessed by God. And a reformation and revival will sweep this church such as never has occurred in the life of this community of faith. I believe that. That's what keeps me going. All right, we got... We turn now to the fascinating second half of Josiah's life. Okay, so goodbye, Deuteronomy. Back to, uh, back to uh, Second Chronicles chapter 34. I want to read that verse again, verse 2. Notice the ages of jo- Josiah. Watch his age. Watch him grow older in front of your eyes. He's going to grow older now. He starts out at 8. Let's start out at 8. That would be verse 2. And he, Josiah... At eight, did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Four, verse three, in the eighth year of his reign. Okay, how old would he be if you're eight when you started and it's the eighth year? How old would he be? He'd be 16. We've got a teenager now. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. Oh, good, good on you. 16 years old. And then notice this. And... In the twelfth year of his reign. How old, you, how old would you be at twel- in the twelfth year of your reign? You're twenty now. Twenty years old. In the twelfth year of his reign, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images. These are all the accoutrements of the occult, sexually uh, riddled occult practices. He began to rid from his home. He began to rid from his library. He began to rid from his DVD collection. He began to go through his music collection on his iPod. He began to get rid of all of the images and the symbols of the occult and the innuendos that were taking him not up but down. He began to get rid of all of them. What age was that? Twelve years, twenty. And so he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. Wow. And now drop down to verse 8. And in the 18th year of his reign, how old would you be now if you're 8 when you started? He's 26 years old. In the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the temple. It takes a while when you're not dealing in your own personal life, but you're trying to help a whole community. It takes a while. He's now 26. In the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder. He said, guys, I need you, please, repair the temple. Hit the pause button right there. What can we know from just these brief lines we've read thus far about the qualifications of a leader 
who will lead a people, who can lead a people into reformation. All right, let's jot them down. These are what, this is really why we're going to Josiah. Qualifications for a reformed and reforming leader. Number one, he seeks, she seeks a walk with God. Well, that's going to feel a lot like what Moses just talked about. Of course it is. Did you expect that to be left out? No. He walks. She walks. She seeks a walk with God. I I know you think this is a no-brainer, but without the leader's personal, private walk with God, any talk of reformation is simply another program being voted and passed down to the rest in the church. We don't need more programs, God knows. So it starts with the, the leader seeking a walk with God. Number two. He obeys the way of God. We already got that in Moses, but it's, a, it's an important reminder, so we put it down. Number two. Now it begins to shift. Number three. Write it down. Number three. He purges what is opposed to God. Now that's significant, isn't it? He purges what is opposed to God. In today's society, it's far more politically correct to avoid any appearance of mandating morality. Please, please, please. Live and let live. I mean, everybody's privately before God. Let them take care of themselves. Never mind the decades... And over them, that which is diametrically opposed to the values and character of God have slipped into the practices and teachings of the community. Sexual compromise, occult innuendos. Look at folks, if we allow the culture to permeate our own community without challenge, we're going to wake up one day with some abominable bedfellows and find out we're sleeping in the same bed. Please. It's the role of the leader. Stop. Take it out. We're not having that here. Purge that which is opposed to God. Well, you know what you're saying. I say, listen, it's not my role as a leader to worry about that. That surely falls under someone else's responsibility. Wrong, 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 wrong. I want to tell you why you're a leader. If you have influence, you're a leader. If you're a daddy and you're getting ready to have your family celebrate Father's Day for you tomorrow, you're a leader. If you're a mother and they celebrated Mother's Day for you a few days ago, you're a leader. You're a leader in a family of four. You're a leader. A spiritual leader. It's your responsibility. What are you going to do? Oh, it's, it's, it's my wife's job to do this. No, it's your job, sir. It's your job. You can't delegate reformation. It has to come from you. Oh, I'm not a leader. Yes, you are. You're in a family. Hey, what are you, you have an office team? How many on the office team? Six, seven, eight? You're a leader. You're on the team. You have influence. You're a leader. What do you have? A Sabbath school class of 20? 20 kids downstairs? You're a leader. You got 20 adults in your Sabbath school class? You're a spiritual leader. Doesn't matter the number that you lead. You can lead a university of 3,000 people, be on a leadership team. You're a leader. Well, that's their job. No, that's your job. I'll let her do it. No, you do it. You're a leader. A denomination of 20 million people, you're a leader. Doesn't matter who you lead. The responsibility is the same. You can't delegate it. You can't say, somebody else take care of the Reformation in the little group I'm in. No, you are the leader. That's the point. The reforming leader cannot delegate reformation to others. He, she must seize the initiative and remove that which is opposed to God. And so the king does. And now the story really intensifies. Whoa, boy. So 26-year-old King Josiah says, All right, I need my trusted advisors. Go into the temple. Tell me the state of disrepair because we must repair this temple. And so he sends them in. And oh, my, it is a mess. And then Hilkiah, the high priest, as he's going through the temple, keeping the dust out of his face because there's some room in here that they haven't ever looked in for a long time, he looks inside the room and he sees it in the corner. Big rolls, scrolls. Where do these come from? 
probably under Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, who was a wicked, evil, horrible, the worst king in the history of Judah. And by the way, he reigned the longest, 55 years. Manasseh, during his bloody persecution, in which tradition tells us Isaiah himself was sawed in half, the mighty prophet. Grandpa Manasseh, probably they, during that persecution, they hid the scrolls. They're the scrolls to the books of Moses. By the way, I've got to tell you about Manasseh. You want to know about grace? You want to know about the love of God? The worst king in the history of Judah and Israel, bar none, gets converted, gets saved, restored to the throne, and leads with the passion of a leader devoted to God. Sometimes we're hard on ourselves as leaders. Come on. Grace is sufficient. Amazing, amazing grace. Anyway, they find, they find those scrolls. And Hilkiah comes and he takes it to Shaphan. And he says, Shaphan, look what we found. And Shaphan, oh, Shaphan reads it. Whoa. He goes to the king. He will not tell the king what he's reading. He says, king, I've, we found some books. And I want to read to you what we found. And now we pick up the story. Pick it up. Uh, what verse is this? This would be verse 18. Then Shaphan, the scribe, told the king, saying, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan, he didn't tell the king. He just began to read the book. He read the book before the king. And thus, verse 19, it happened. When the king heard the words of the law, that he tore his clothes. (laughs) Why? Why would you tear your clothes over reading the book of the law? Because when you read the book of the law or the book of the covenant, as it's called, you read just the book of Deuteronomy. And it is, it is, it is laced with the blessings and cursings that will come to the people who obey or reject the life eternal that God is offering. And as Josiah, 26 years old, the king of his nation, as Josiah is listening now, it's an audio version that he's listening to. As he hears it, he breaks down. He knows his people are doomed. We have, we have rebelled against heaven. Prophets and Kings poignantly describes this moment this way. Overwhelmed with sorrow and dismay, Josiah rent his garments and bowed before God in agony of spirit, seeking pardon for the sins of an impenitent nation. But then he takes a step that elevates a spiritual leader into the reformed and reforming leader. He inquires. Get this. He inquires of the prophet. Watch this. Verse, uh, verse 21. His trusted advisors. He tells them, go inquire of the Lord for me. And for those who are left in Israel and Judah. Concerning the words of the book that is found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So verse 22, Hilkiah the high priest and those the king had appointed went to hold the prophetess. Isn't that something? There was a prophetess in the land. And the king said, find that prophetess for me. Talk to the prophetess for me. Is there any hope for us? They found the prophetess, Holda, insignificant. She's not talking about all through Scripture. You get a little mention right here. Insignificant, but a critical role in a reformation about to explode. Isn't that something? And Holda, when they found her, look at verse 23. The delegates, when they found her, then she answered them. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, God speaking now, 
tell the man who sent you to me? Hit the hot pause button right there. In other words, tell that king. Tell that 26-year-old king. I have a word for him. Isn't that amazing? I mean, can you imagine? Now, think with me for a moment. What would it have been like to have lived in the days of the prophets when a word from God is just one letter away? Open your mailbox, a word. What would it have been like to live back then? To live when a dream or a vision from the prophet or prophetess was divine counsel, clear and sufficient. When leaders thrived when they heeded the prophet, but administrations withered when they rejected the prophetess. Ah, come on, Dwight, those days, those days are long ago, aren't they? Or are they? Are they? I believe there is no happenstance. It is no happenstance that the leaders who were most successful in administering the people of God long ago in Israel were the leaders who were humble enough to seek and receive counsel from God's prophet. Took courage. Took a whole lot of humility. Two kings ago, by the way, we heard, that's two kings ago in our own study, we heard King Jehoshaphat. Remember him speaking these words? Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 20. Believe in the Lord your God. And you shall be established. Jot it down. Will you believe His prophets? And you shall prosper. Josiah sought the counsel of the prophetess Holda, and it was the requisite to the greatest reformation in the history of his people. Believe His prophets and so shall you prosper. God give us leaders who believe. For God knows this community desperately needs a reformation and a revival. In fact, would you jot it down, please? The fourth qualification for being a reformed and reforming leader for God, jot it down. He inquires of the prophetess of God. She inquires of the prophetess of God. God give us reformed and reforming leaders who not only believe the prophets, but who also inquire of the prophets there's no other way for the people, for the people they lead to prosper unless first the leader believes and inquires of the prophetess. Look, you think about it. Come on. If you believe your counselor to be inspired, then you'll be inspired. And when you are inspired, you become inspiring and the people follow. They follow because you have a conviction. Josiah lived out in a dramatically clear way. Oh, by the way, you know, for Josiah to go to the prophetess took courage to stand up for God and not only courage, but took humility. It takes humility for a leader to follow the prophetess. Because we must have it all ourselves. I got the mind. I got the skill. I lead. No. You want to lead to a reformation. Inquire. Inquire of the prophetess. Pick it up in verse 29. 
Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 30, the king went up to the house of the Lord. Isn't this something? He went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small, in mass. Now, they're having this convocation. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. And then the king stood in his place and he made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And you can't believe that verse 32 is there. The next verse. Can you believe this? Verse 32 is there. And it reads, and he made all. Every translation renders it And he made all, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin take a stand. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers and mothers. And thus ensues a 13-year revival and reformation. Proving true the fifth qualification. Here it is, the final one. The fifth qualification of a reformed and reforming leader. Write it down, please. He, she reforms the people of God. Don't be afraid to write that one down. Reforms the people of God. That's an amazing line. Any way you look at it. And he made all take a stand. Look at the truth is, come on, you and I aren't, we're born yesterday. We know the truth. The truth is, you can't force people to take your stand. But you can direct them to take a stand. What's Elijah doing on top of Mount Carmel? He said, hey, yo! Hey, if Baal is God, follow him. If God is God, follow him. But how long are you going to go limping back and forth between two opinions? You have to take a stand. I'm not telling you what stand to take, but you have to take a stand. What is Joshua doing in our scripture this morning? He says, hey, listen, you choose whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we are taking a stand. We will serve the Lord. It's clear. You can't force people to take your stand, but you can direct them to take a stand. And listen to me. I believe this is absolutely true. Sometimes all that the people are wanting, some even longing for, is the leader to take a stand so that they might take a stand too. I've heard it. I've sensed it. And so have you. I've read a series of press releases from an organization, not here. And I tell you what, I'm, I'm not bright, and so in my humble evaluation, these were nuanced press releases, felt to me at least like they were carefully trying to thread the needle of not quite committed committal. We do, but we don't. We are, but we, we, we aren't. We're taking a stand, but we're not. I mean, come on. Here I stand. God help me. Leaders have to take a stand. You can't delegate the stand to others. You have to take it yourself. Take a stand. You can't make people take your stand, but you can call them to take a stand. So Josiah did. 
Write it down, please. People will follow a leader who stands up because a leader who stands up stands out. And that's the truth of Josiah. They will follow a leader who stands up because a leader who stands up stands out. God, give us reformed and reforming leaders who stand up and stand out for Him. For 13 more years, Josiah does just that. And then, pardon me for putting it this way, but then he makes a stupid military move. You can't believe it. You just can't. How could this be? He musters up an army to attack Pharaoh Necho, who is going by Judah on his way to a battle far to the north. Josiah says, come on, put your dukes up. I want to fight with you. Why was he doing it? It was a foolish mistake. And do you know why he made the mistake? Because this time, he said, you know, I've been a leader for a while. I'm doing quite fine, thank you. I won't need any counsel this time. I'm not, ask, I'm not inquiring of the prophet or the prophetess. I'll just do it myself. Do you know what Necho said to him? When Necho heard that, the, that this king was coming after him, do you know what Necho said? You look at there. I'm not going to read the verse for you. Necho said, hey, wait a minute. Time out. Time out. I'm not here to pick a fight with you. I'm going beyond here. Get away from me. And then Necho says, God, Elohim, has come to me and told me not to meddle with you. Stay out of this. I'm going north. And Josiah was so humiliated that a pagan would tell him to obey his God. And he says, I'm taking my kingly robes off. I'll dress like a regular soldier and I'll ride my chariot and I'm going to fight him. Nobody's going to tell me at 39 what to do. You know what? All he, hey, time out. Time, hey, hey, Josiah, just run Pharaoh's, run Pharaoh's message by Holda. Just ask the prophetess, is, is this really of God? That's all you need. If she says, no, it's not of God, go ahead. But he doesn't want to. Filled with his heady oats, he goes off. And they're just random. Just Hit the king by random. He said, servants, put me in that second chariot. Get me back to Jerusalem. He's dead. He's buried. You read the last lines. He's buried in the tombs of the king at 39. Needlessly. Needlessly. If he had just remembered, inquire of the prophetess. Ask the way of God. Sad story. But it reminds me of another story, not so sad. Another leader strayed into the battle, only this leader. It was planned that he goes into this battle. It is strategized that he will be killed in this battle. But by dying in this battle, straight through the heart, but by dying, he will be able to save every leader who is misused as I have. His responsibilities miscued his leadership. Every one of us is a leader, but he died on Calvary intentionally to show that the love and the grace of God are far greater than the failure of leaders on earth. Hallelujah. And if God can save Manasseh, And he can say the likes of you and me. What did the leader say? And I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people 
I will draw leaders to me. You see, in order to be a leader, you have to follow the leader. There's the leader right there. You want to know who's leading this community globally? There's the leader right there. I tell you what, it may be embarrassing to stand out now and then, but I'd rather stand up for this leader and pay the price of standing out than not standing up at all. Follow the leader. Follow the leader. That's what it means to be a leader in your marriage. That's what it means to be a leader in life. Follow the leader. 